when it comes time to do something, I would rather put myself at risk than put my team at risk. And if my team is going to be at risk, then I have to lead my team into risk. And it has to be a team decision that we're going to go as a team. Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast, The End of Blindness. With myself, your host, Bhavandeep Singh, and my guests, ophthalmic surgeon, Dr. James Guzek, and director, A.J. Martinson. The End of Blindness is an award-winning documentary highlighting the incredible true story of Dr. Samuel Bora, who is the only ophthalmologist for three million people in Ethiopia, a country currently in the midst of civil war, and one with the highest rates of blindness in all of Africa. In this podcast, we will talk about the awe-inspiring precision microsurgery being performed in mobile operating theaters that can be transported in the back of SUVs, most often in the middle of nowhere, the impact cataract-related blindness has on the local population, and the mindset required to make a difference in extreme environments far removed from the high-tech operating theaters of the West. I'm honored today to be joined by one of Dr. Bora's colleagues, Dr. James Guzek, who has been practicing ophthalmology for over 30 years and has served as the chief of ophthalmology for several years at the J.L. Pettis VA Hospital, Loma Linda, California. As well as working in Saudi Arabia for three years, Sri Lanka for three years, and Ghana for four years, before moving to the Pacific Cataract and Laser Surgery Institute, Kennewick, Washington, where he is now based. I'm also very grateful to be joined by the director of the End of Blindness movie, Mr. A.J. Martinson, who has worked as a producer and director on several projects, ranging from documentaries, independent films, and spy thrillers, and who also has founded his own production company, Section 3 Films. These men have in common a desire to use their skills to help those in need and also to bring about a lasting and positive change to areas of the world where most often the need is greatest, but resources the fewest. Thanks for having us, Pav. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I, I think we should just get straight into it um, and start off with um, our discussion. Um, Jim, could you explain for the benefit of our listeners exactly what a cataract is? Um, and then could you describe the burden of cataract related blindness in the developing world? Okay, so um, when the natural lens becomes cloudy, we call it a cataract. And so what we do with modern cataract surgery is we remove the cloudy part of the cataract, the inside part, and we put in an implant lens, ideally one that has, will uh, suit the patient to give them distance vision and to restore their sight. And so as far as the burden of um, cataracts, and uh, so about in the developing world, uh, so Africa and Central America, South America and Asia and parts of Asia. So in the developing world, about half of 
all blindness is from cataract. And so in, uh, in our circumstance in Ethiopia, we have supported uh, Dr. Samuel We've, we, with high volume cataract surgery on, uh, in eye camp settings. Uh, we've been providing uh, sight restoring cataract surgery with an implant calculated to give people good vision at distance for about $50 per eye. And it's about, um, if you look at the overall population of, of Ethiopia, it's about 1% of the population is blind. And so about half of that would be blindness that's easily curable and uh, with a, uh, a you know, five or six minute cataract surgery. Thank you. Thank you, James. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, there's, the numbers are staggering. I, I've got some numbers here. Um, from a paper I was reading, and they say in 2020, an estimated 15.2 million people worldwide, aged 50 plus, were were blind due to cataract. Um, and you know, in the West, generally the cat cataract is pretty much a, an inconvenience given the levels of care we have and the access to care we have. Um, but obviously, in the setting of the developing world, it can be something that can completely destroy lives because blindness sets in people cannot work they therefore cannot provide for their family it leads to poverty um starvation and you know it can end lives so it's a, it's a really big big problem um i would phrase it a little i would put the order a little different pav okay. so what we're dealing with mostly my main concern in the developing world is with people that are, are already poor but who are managing and they can manage because they, they, you know, they can work. And so they can feed themselves and their family, whether a little bit better one day than another day. But when somebody who's poor becomes blind, it becomes a hopeless situation for that person. And if they're responsible, if they're the primary wage earner for a wife and for small children, then it's a desperate situation for everybody in the family, or even if they're a grandfather and the, the, um, the, the, the grandfather is working and is no longer able to work, then the children often have to decide, are we going to try to get grandpa cataract surgery or are we going to send the kids to school because school fees have to be paid? So um, it's, it's, that's the way I would frame it. Okay, now that's, that's and obviously you have, you've seen the effects firsthand, haven't you? Obviously you've oh. both been on the ground, yeah. Sure. Yeah. From your experience, what's what are the main barriers that prevent you know the effective management of cataract blindness in, in the developing world, such as Ethiopia? So this is a question which um, it, you know we can't gl just gloss over this question. This is going to take. This really takes. There's there's uh, there's many many different factors, and there. Of course, there are principal factors, but then there are many underlying, you know, smaller sub-factors as well. But certainly we would have to say poverty is the, is the main factor. As I said, when people are healthy, they can somehow manage. But if the poor become blind, it becomes a hopeless situation. Now, even if they're in the capital where there are... Um, uh, let's say they're fortunate they're in the capital where there are eye care providers, it might cost between $500 and $1,000 or even $2,000 to get a cataract surgery done. But uh, if they're in a rural area where there's far fewer 
a far, far poorer access to eye care, they may not have uh, they may not even know where to go for a cataract surgery. And if they would know to go to the capital, you know, it's, it's very, very expensive for people in the, in the countryside to go to the city and then to navigate into the government healthcare system and stay there for days and then get an appointment and stay there for more days and then whatever the charges are. So we would have to say unquestionably that poverty is the number one factor but there are, but there are, we, the, the, the next most important factor is the, you know, the role of the eye care specialist in the developing world. Well, there, there are not so many of them. And about half of the ones that are there are working in the capital. Of course, they can make a, uh, they can make a living in the capital much more easily than they can uh, in the districts. It's, it's really, impossible to making make a good living taking care of poor blind people all the time because they just can't pay and so um so the ones who are out in the districts are generally on a salary from somebody like cbm or light for the world or uh, the um, Royal Commonwealth Society or some other groups that uh, uh, might be able to fund them or even the government. But the salaries are, are fairly low, I would say. I would say too low to really attract the highest quality uh, and to, to, to incentivize them. Then there's the problem of the wives. And a lot of, uh, you know, for the male ophthalmologists, the, uh, the wives often don't want to be living uh, in the rural areas in part because of the schooling. The best schools are in the capital. And if you want your children to, to succeed, which of course parents do, then the, uh, both parents want their kids to be going to good schools, which are not available in rural areas. And, and then the cost is there. So the cost can be $1,000 or more per child per, per year. And, and uh, that's just simply not affordable on a salary if you're in the if you're in one of the rural areas so so in some there's there's very few i serve for, for a couple of reasons and these among others there's not so many uh, surgeons that choose or and are able to live in rural areas even if they have a heart and they want to serve uh, poor people they want to help the blind it, it sometimes it, uh, oftentimes it's just not um, financially possible for the family and yeah. uh, so then we have the, the, the matter that then there's other matters as well that are perhaps lesser matters, but still important. So what you have, uh, the reason for blindness is that most cataract surgeons um, are limited in the, and end up doing maybe 200 or 300 or 400 cataract surgeries per year. There's not really um, mechanisms in place for everybody to do, uh, you know, eye camps and so on. And not all surgeons are are created equal. Um, if if we look at, at say a hundred uh, cataract surgeries in the developing world, certainly we're going to find uh, maybe two out of the hundred, or two or three out of the hundred that just are naturally uh, superbly gifted. And I just don't mean. I mean, the first of all, would be just you know superb surgeons that get that even in eye camp situations can get just superb results. And but also in terms of kindness in terms of a, a, a heart to be able to perform the very laborious work that uh, is involved with an eye camp. I, I can tell you, Pav, I've done, 
when in my four years that I was in Ghana, I would do I camp work about three or four times a year, and they were exhausting. It is a very laborious uh, enterprise, and and so it um, it's hard to find ophthalmologists that that really would want to do more than two or three or four uh, eye camps in a year that have the capacity to do that and they, they can do high volume cataract surgery mm. all the time. Uh, so then you get into remuneration at eye camps. So, and here's where the rubber maybe hits the road again. So generally speaking, um, it's, basi it's the, basically the per diem salary for uh, a cataract surgeon, ophthalmologist at an eye camp might be around $150 per day. Well, that, you know, that may sound wonderful and great to, uh, you know, from our side, wow, we're paying, you know, we're paying them that much. And that's, and that does attract cataract surgeons and ophthalmologists to do eye camps. Uh, and because they can make $1,000 or so in a, in a, in a week. Um, but um uh, really, when it comes down to it, there's really, you know, and they work, you know, all these guys are working their tails off. But when it comes down to it, uh, thought given to being even more productive and doing more and, and, and being able to help more people is not there because there's really no incentive and, and, and it's not done that many times a year. So the economies of scale don't really uh, fall into it, and there's and then there's a couple of other smaller factory factors. And we might get into, um, you know, in uh, in any place there's um, honesty factors, integrity factors, jealousy, uh, and um, things like this affect, um, you know, how uh, the West, how we in the West are able to interface with with different people. And, uh, and then finally, I don't think that there's, uh, uh, except for the paradigm which we've used in Ethiopia, I think we have the best paradigm. I, I may be biased a little bit, who knows? But, um, but uh, I, other than our paradigm, I don't see a, a great paradigm for, for uh, working with uh, top ophthalmic surgeons uh, who would want and who would be, uh, be, be a blessing to the people doing monthly eye camps one week a month. Uh, in high volume eye camp situations, so that's a long answer to a to a short question. And I'm sure in any given situation there are even more complexities involved. But at least that touches on the main ones. Wonderful, wonderful, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, as you said, it is a multi-level problem that kind of spans society, families, individual levels. Um, just based on what you said and um, touching upon what, something what you said, how did you become involved as, as, a, as an ophthalmologist trained in the US? Um, how did you become involved in providing cataract relief in the developing world? Because we've spoken a bit earlier and you, know, this, you had quite a personal journey in that as well. Yes. So, um, well, you've given me permission to, to go into that a little bit. So, um, you know, when I, my father was an ophthalmologist. And uh, so I, uh, when I tried ophthalmology, I was smitten and I really loved ophthalmology. But along the way, I got a girl pregnant and, uh, you know, I was behaving very selfishly, only thinking of myself. And when I got that girl pregnant and, and she had the child and she gave the child up for adoption and I'm, I'm in contact with the, uh, the, the, the not so young man, he's 40 years old now, um, but it shook me to my core. 
uh, ma making me realize that my actions have consequences. And I was just living life for myself in a very selfish manner. And it made me uh, take, uh, you know, take a big step backwards and ask God, you know, to, uh, to help me to not hurt people like that, mm. not, to, not to hurt uh, my son, not to hurt the girls like I was doing. And so really, um, uh, over the course of the next few years, uh, through meditation and prayer, and um, uh, I started to uh, just quiet myself and, and I think not become selfish. And God blessed me with that. But then I, I started to ask God, well, what did he want from me? You know, now that I, I was prepared and I was more supple. And the answer that I got back was the, the gift that I had been given was not for me. It was to help other people. And so uh, I had uh, taken my first job after training in Saudi Arabia. And uh, I came back from Saudi Arabia and knowing that not knowing exactly what I was going to do, but then um, I uh, accept eventually accepted a position with the Christian Blind Mission or Christ CBM. And I spent uh, three years in Sri Lanka and um, uh, doing uh, cataract surgery uh, on people there. And I learned a, a tremendous amount there and I was able to help a lot of people there. Um, and uh, so and I, the Lord has continued, I believe, to work in my life, to lead me, um, to do th you know, extraordinary things and to have extraordinary opportunities. And he's, uh, he's always provided funding and, and help from other people to be able to do things as, for example, uh, with Dr. Samuel, as, as we see in, in AJ's wonderful video. James, no, I, I love that, and I, I remember we spoke um, at one point um, when we when we initially spoke, um, and you know you are a, a man of strong faith, and you had that. I guess you could call it, you know, you, as you described when you had that low point, you kind of faced the shadow, or you know, as the, the dragon, as some people call it in philosophy, that you know the transformative moment, um, and then you know you went on what could be. Um, you know, described as a bit of a hero's journey when you, you know, you, you see that in front of you and you realize, right, it's time for me to make a change. Um, I also um, remember hearing in the end of Blindness movie, a, a really wonderful line that you actually, you said, um, talking about, you know, how you kind of take that step into the unknown or how you have taken that step into the unknown on countless occasions. Um, you said, I do my part, God does his uh, and you spoke about, you know, you're going out there with the desire to help people and, and get these surgeries going. And sometimes you're not quite sure how it's going to turn out. Uh, <laughs> and then the people on the ground look to you for the leadership. And then you've got your trust and your faith in God. You believe, you know, you're going to be you're going to be caught and, you know, everything is going to be OK. Just just to talk about that, you know, because I mean faith you know some people have faith some people don't but i think we can all have shared virtues and you know as a human race we all have a desire to look after each other to be to, to do good um do you think this your faith gives you you know the courage and freedom to take the step into the unknown um to be present in the action the doing of of the deed rather than being bogged down by a fear of failure say Well, um, 
You know, I all I just for me, it's it's a matter that um, I want. I, I'm not so smart that I know what's what is in the future. You know, no, and I, I don't think anybody can know what's in the future. And so I, 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 my job is to, as you say, to discern what it is that's God's plan. And if it's in God's plan, whether it works or it doesn't work, as long as I'm doing what God wants for me to do, it's a success for me. So the project doesn't have to work. That's not, that's not, the, that's not the end goal. The, the end goal is for me to do what God wants for me to do. And then he has to take care of the rest. Wonderful, yeah. So there's there's a saying I've been brought up with is you can well, I mean, I'm not sure it's cross cultures, but you can sow the seeds, but the the harvest or the fruit is out of your hands, right? So you yes, can, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, just coming back to um, the we mentioned that the paradigm, the structure in Ethiopia that you you've set up. Could you talk to us about that a little bit and just how you know what the infrastructure on the ground there is? Okay, so when um, when we when I went to Ethiopia, I first went with uh, Larry Thomas, who just passed away in December of 2020, um, and uh, Larry was the one who brought me over. Um, with a, he had a, he was making a plea to all the ophthalmologists who he knew, and uh, through a network of, of uh, work, I was uh, made aware of his request to uh, for an ophthalmologist over in rural Ethiopia. So um, for the first time when I went over, for me to solicit uh, donations, uh, it required the signature of a national ophthalmologist. And Dr. Samuel was the only national ophthalmologist in that region. And so the sister, uh, Sister Evelyn Puestra, um, went to Dr. Samuel and got him to sign the request that he would uh, he would you know take care of any complications or whatever happened and that allowed me to solicit from C International and from other groups so that when I went to Ethiopia with Larry I had uh, a whole bunch of eye drops and medications and uh, supplies and operating microscope and and so on so on I went there and I opened up my box of goods I could start you know I could screen people for cataracts and I could actually do a cataract surgery. And so at that time, there was just a bunch of empty rooms and there were, they were, they were doing some screening, but there were eye nurses that were there and that was very important. And Samuel was in a different hospital and he was a couple, couple two hours away and he had a fully functioning eye operating unit. And so what we had were two important pieces on the ground. We had a national ophthalmologist that was young and smart and a good surgeon with a heart to care for people with unquestionable integrity. And we had Sister Evelyn who could um, act to do purchasing and coordination and logistics and uh, provide vehicles and so those over the, it took a few years because another part of this is relationship. And so it, it, when I would go to Ethiopia each time, I would make an effort to swing by. It, uh, actually, the first time we met, um, it's a bit funny. 
But the first time I, I went, I didn't meet Dr. Samuel the first time. And my heart was so wounded when I went the first time. I came back uh, about six months later. And Sister Evelyn, uh, God bless her, uh, understood the importance of relationship. And so she notified Dr. Samuel that she wanted for him to come and meet me when I was at Dembidolo. And he told her, he said, sister, I'm swamped with patients. I, I can't possibly come. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. She told him, well, I'm going to send a car. And then I want you to come. Please come. And so he, the car comes, okay? And he, he, knows, he knows he's been notified such and such a day the car is coming. And he, you know, the sister had her way. So he came and we met and we hit it off very, very well, almost as if we had known each other and were brothers all our lives. And so every time I would go to Ethiopia, I would make sure to renew that friendship with Samuel. And so then he was um, at the end of his uh, promised time to because to, he had to pay back a couple of years for the training that he had received in ophthalmology. So he did that by working at Ira Hospital for a, a few year, a couple of years. And he had even worked in excess of that because of the financial difficulties faced, you know, with just not making enough money, uh, he was going to go work at the Capitol. But yeah. the infrastructure was there for something to happen. And it, but it was only there to happen maybe one week a month. Samuel needs to be with his family in the Capitol. I don't want to take him away where he's out, where he's not able to be with his family. That would be wrong. But can I, uh, can we ask him, would he find it, could he find it in his heart to give one week per month to do an eye camp every month? And then Sister Evelyn could do the logistics, she could do the purchasing, and then not only could he work then at Ira or, and at Dembidola, but he could do outreach as well. And what we, would, what we would do is then we would fundraise for the disposables, but not only that, we would pay him a base salary and an incentive salary on a per cataract basis and so with, um, with all of that on the plate and offering it, it was, must have seemed awfully bizarre to Dr. Samuel because who is Jim Guzik? I mean, I, I'm nobody, you know, I don't have, I'm not CBM, I'm not light for the world. And so he really had to discern whether he could trust Larry Thomas and me. And in the end, you know, he struggled with it, he told us. He, he had knots in his stomach. He was struggling and struggling and struggling. And finally, he decided, well, that was what God wanted from him. And then he felt at peace. And he said he was able to sleep then. So, um, so we started together, working together. And we, sponsor, we sponsored iCamps one week a month, every month. And... Um, and we did that from 2013 onwards. And it's, you know, Dr. Samuel has exceeded our wildest expectations. Um, uh, most recently, we've, he's completed more than 25,000 cataract surgeries for us, which is something we wow. only dreamed of back in 2013. That's, that's amazing, that's the staggering numbers. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, when I was looking, when I was watching the end of Blindness movie, I think, James, as you mentioned earlier, all the different factors, the barriers that um, contribute to the, the burden of blindness, cataract, 
related blindness. I think you'd be really stuck struck gold with Dr. Bora because he's he's got it all, hasn't he? He's got the the skill, the personality, the compassion, the right attitude. Um, and you know, it's all about a sacrifice, isn't it? Because he's. I, I remember on the. Um, I think AJ did a post recently, uh, a quotation from the movie, um, where you know you see Dr. Bora with his little with his daughter, and and he's saying, you know, I tell you know when she asks me, Daddy, why are you going away? I say it's it's for the blind people, and then she understands. So that the little girl, you know, no little girl wants her father to go away for a long time, but when you tell her it's for the blind people. Even the little girl understands, you know, and that was very touching. And, you know, you, and I really urge people listening to go out and we'll, we'll talk about end of blindness and you know, where to see it at the end of the podcast. But I really urge people to go out and see it. It's, it's, a, it's an emotional journey. It's a, it's a you know, inspiring journey um, of what can be done you know, if, the, if the mindset, the heart is in the right place. Um, before AJ, I will come to you in a second. But finally, James, just to talk about, because um, we spoke about... Um, cataract what it is for our listeners um in the west phaco emulsification is our mainstay of a uh, technique of getting rid of cataracts um which is basically um an ultrasonic probe which well, a probe which oscillates the ultrasonic frequencies and you know tops up the lens and you can aspirate it out um, the technique used in cataracts done in the developing world m6 i believe is, is a lot different um, could you just briefly discuss the differences and, and how has it been a game changer in, sense, in the sense of the financial and the technical um, abilities required? Right. So really, since a cataract is a clouding of the lens, Pav, so really all what, the, the method of removing the cloudy lens is inconsequential. If we can remove it, the contents of the lens safely, and uh, we can do it through a small incision, and we can put in an implant lens that's suitable for the eye, we can accomplish the goal and restore surgery. And that's what that's what M manual small incision cataract surgery or M6 does. And so we found a way to remove this, uh, you know, nine or ten millimeter. Um, uh, by four millimeter thick cloudy lens through a what amounts to about a six millimeter incision that's um, uh, flayed out. You know, it's just this very special technique and Samuel does it just better, as good as anybody in the world. And so, uh, but the, the difference is he uses um, uh, basically a needle to remove the whole cataract instead of a $50,000 machine plus a whole lot more saline and a whole lot more viscoelastic in order to remove it using phaco emulsification. So for where cost is, the pre is, a, is, a, is a, an overriding factor, and it is for eye camps, and where we can do it safely and effectively and get the same result for $50, why would we pay uh, why would we make patients or our donors pay, let's say three or four hundred or five hundred dollars per cataract? You know, it just it's it's it would not be a good use of donor money. Exactly, um, and just just again to highlight to our listeners, uh, what we're, we're talking about the a working margin of a few millimeters, really, when we talk about cataract surgery, um, and 
again, in, in the end of blindness, we see how there are mobile operating rooms almost where the equipment is, is put in, in vans and, and vehicles and you're taking these over to sites in the bush and, and performing this degree of high precision surgery. Um, how, James, do you feel when, when, when you're obviously performing a surgery in that setting compared to performing surgery back in back at home in the U.S.? Well, you know, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's, uh, you know, you, you have to make compromises, but you have to know what compromises you're willing to make. And there are a lot of compromises that you can't make. You have to have a team that really has been hardened and trained so that they know what, uh, how things run and they can protect the patients. Uh, but if you can do that, um, you know, it's, you can make as it were, magic by helping people to get their lives back by giving them their sight. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's, I mean, AJ, I'm going to bring you in now and uh, um, speak to you and ask you a few questions about how you become involved and, um, you know, your input on this. I mean, you obviously have your own production company. You've been working on documentaries, independent films, spy thrillers. What led you to tell the story of Dr. Bora and his colleagues in Ethiopia? Well, uh, you know, just like uh, just like Jim said, it, it all kind of begins with Larry. Um, Larry Thomas, Dr. Larry Thomas was my cousin. He's the founder of THAF. Um, and they're the organization that sponsors, you know, Dr. Samuel's work. Um, and I've uh, I've been volunteering with him and for him uh, since I was 16. And he brought me out to Ethiopia um, in 2009, and I took my little handy cam DV camcorder, and it was right when I was getting started making films, and uh, was really getting interested in filmmaking. And so I shot a documentary for him there uh, on his work with podoconiosis, which is another tropical disease. Uh, I believe it's a viral infection of the foot that causes swelling. Uh, it's really a devastating thing very hard to cure. There's some treatment that you can do to, to ease the swelling. Um, and it's entirely preventable uh, just with shoes, which is a, 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 something that is not commonly available, especially out in these rural, rural areas. Um, and so I made that film and uh, Larry liked it. He encouraged me. And that was actually my first ever professional production that I made for someone. Um, so THAF and my film career have gone hand in hand for Pretty much my uh, entire <laughs> career. Sorry, um, just to interrupt that. So that's the, just yeah. for the benefit of the listeners, the Tropical Health Alliance Foundation, PHAF. So if they want PHAF. to look that up, they can. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, um, okay, carry on. Yes, please. Yeah. And so after, uh, after doing that production, he brought me back again. And that's when I met Dr. Guzik for the first time. Well, he was operating in Dimbidolo uh, out of a small, one of these remote eye camps. Um, and we did a film at that time called Two Lives Saved that focused on one of the most heartbreaking issues um, of blindness in Ethiopia. And that's, you know, they don't have access to the resources we have here. They don't have seeing eye dogs. And so often a child will be used as a guide leading, you know, the elderly family members around. Um, and so the film focused on a young girl, seven years old. She's stuck leading her grandfather day after day. He has to go to the bathroom. She has to lead him. He has to walk down the street. She has to lead him. She can't go to school, can't work. It's terrible. Um, and we do the cat, Dr. Guzik does the cataract surgery. 
grandpa can see again. And there's this beautiful moment in the film where their hands release and two people are now completely free. Grandpa from blindness and the, uh, the young girl from leading him around. And um, so that was extremely touching and very formative. Um, and then uh, a few, many years later, Larry pulls me back to Ethiopia again. Um, and he introduces me to Dr. Samuel. And in the first 10 minutes of meeting him, I realized this, this project needed to not be a three minute video that goes on a website and that's it. Uh, Dr. Samuel's character, first and foremost, really struck me as something that, you know, like we're talking about how, you know, Tropical Health Alliance Foundation struck gold working with Dr. Samuel and his character behind that. That really touched me. I mean, not only his dedication to the craft and to helping people see, which is amazing. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, how being an ophthalmologist in rural Ethiopia is not going to make you rich by any means. Um, this is a service oriented mission he has. But also even as a young kid, um, he told a story on camera about how he was walking to school every day barefoot for miles and miles and miles just because he wanted an education. And you know, staying up late into the night uh, 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 with his peers studying just so he could pass his exams and never giving up in any of that. And so his determination, his perseverance and his you know, selfless desire to help people. Uh, you know, When he first started as a doctor, he didn't start in the capital city. He went back to the rural areas where he was from and decided to serve there first. Um, and that's where he got inspired to be an ophthalmologist. So meeting him, you just, you, you just got this sense. It had to be a story that needed to be shared and shared completely and fully and in a big way, not just, you know, living on a website somewhere. So that's what really, uh, that's what really inspired me to make this film. Wonderful. And what, I, what I can see comes across is just how much he inspired you and, you know, that, that motivation to get the story out there, which is partly obviously why, why we're doing this call as well. And, you know, just to highlight all the efforts you've put in, Dr. Guzek has put in, um, it's, it's something that I think does really need to go out and, and people need to, um, become aware of it because as you mentioned the story of the, the little girl and her grandfather you know and as Dr. Guzik was mentioning earlier all those intricate levels of that you know that cause this problem and, and the, the effect it has on families and society we tend mm. not to think about you know a, an old person who is blind from cataract actually is going to tie down the little grandchild who can't yeah. play with their friends and that's a childhood um, gone right so they've lost their childhood and if you can do a $50 surgery then you've basically restored two people's lives um on that note um you, you I think you've obviously you've gone over this before but what struck you the most in terms of the story out of the people out there who are, are suffering from blindness from cataract and and the surgeons who go out there and provide the care you know when when you meet the patients out there the number one sense that I have is hopelessness. Being blind is difficult anywhere in the world. Being blind in rural Ethiopia is exceptionally difficult. Uh, low road infrastructure, very few social programs. Um, a lot of the challenges that we've already talked about here, uh, you know, make it very hard on someone. And, you know, oftentimes life is hanging in the balance. 
Um, we open the film with Mrs. Thadilich, who could be anyone's grandmother, but just because of cataracts, she's not able to work, which means she's not able to eat. And her number one desire in life, it's not lofty. I want to see so I can work and I can put food on the table, even if that means just making injera bread and selling it to my community around me. Um, and, and that's something just that, that sheer helplessness and desperation just to be able to see from something that here in the United States, I mean, the moment you have any inkling of a cataract, it's taken care of and you can see completely normal in, you know, a matter of minutes, you know, uh, it really struck me the contrast. Um, and then with the surgical team, we talk about a hardened surgical team who, who is ready to combat anything. Uh, the dedication to excellence that everyone on that team has, um, whether it's the person who's sterilizing the equipment, the people who are packing the gear when we're unloading and, and, and you know, building the clinic and for, like, you know, shipping containers or mission hospitals or, or schools even. Um, every step of the way, every person in that team is just dedicated to providing the absolute best that they can for, uh, you know, the blind poor in the country who could never afford any version of cataract surgery, but they're getting the absolute best which means no glasses afterwards, no Coke bottle glasses. Every eye is measured precisely. Correct intraocular lens going in 2020, the day after surgery. Blows my mind that that's the level that they're providing. And that is, that's Dr. Samuel. He sets that tone for everyone else. And you mentioned the, the dedication to excellence. And I, I think that's probably one of the essences of, of a surgeon and a surgical team. Yeah. Um, what impact do you want this movie to have, AJ? That's a great question. You know, I, I think it's twofold. Um, and, and the first is when someone watches this, I hope that they have their faith in humanity restored. Um, we've been through some really hard times as a world lately, and people need positive, uplifting content that will leave them feeling like there is hope in this world. And, and you know, whether that's hope for you know, anyone hope for someone who's just wants to see so they can go back to work. Uh, I think that'll leave you with a very warm feeling and it'll show you what humanity looks like when it operates at its very best, at its kindest, at its purest, at its most honest. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the emotional goal on a very real level. I hope that this film, you know, through international distribution gets translated and is shown in countries that are underserved by ophthalmologists and that it inspires more people in those countries to do what Dr. Samuel is doing, to provide this kind of surgery because he was inspired and, and we've talked to him post film and it didn't make it in, but he was inspired by being in the OR and watching people come out, you know, go in and then the come out seeing and looking at the joy on their faces in Ira hospital. And, you know, at that time, they weren't doing the full measurement. They were kind of giving them the, you know, the Coke bottle glasses uh, after surgery. Um, and he wanted to do more and he wanted to do it better. And he asked, how can I get involved with that? And that's how he ended up being an ophthalmologist. So if people can see that level of impact, maybe it'll inspire them as well. And so that's my lofty, you know, dream. Wonderful. That I hope comes I, I, and I think it will, because personally, I, I can vouch for that because having seen it, I, you know, it ticked all those boxes and, you know, um, 
as an ophthalmologist coming to the end of my training, it's given me a lot of plans and inspirations. Um, Dr. Guzek, just coming back to you, um, AJ's mentioned the kind of the mindset of the, the types of surgeons that go out there. And you've, you've, you've done many things. You're, I think you've just been incredibly humble throughout this, um, this talk about your achievements. Um, but, you know, you've got many years of experience um, and looking, watching the movie, um, what I've picked up and what we've spoken about in the past is your philosophy of wanting to fix problems and not just make money because as ophthalmologists, we know we can just make loads of money, right? And we can have a nice, easy life. As a, as a, that's the perk of the career. But in the movie, you mentioned that, and this is a very, I loved how you put this. You said, us surgeons have been given a chance to train and that we should take the responsibility to use our gifts. What advice would you give to ophthalmologists or doctors in other specialties who want to embark on providing medical or surgical care in the developing world and just don't really know how to start to go about doing it. Right. So uh, I applaud you, Pav, for, for you're starting out on the right track and you're starting out young. And that's, you know, if you're going to do this, um, you know, there's going to be ups and downs and successes and failures and really um, so you want to do this with somebody, you want to apprentice under somebody who's doing it, and you want to start ideally when you're on the younger side. Uh, it, I think it would be uh, hard to, to, to work um, in a regular Western setting all your life, and then when you retire, think that you're going to go over and do mission work or, or developing world work at that uh, at that time. That's going that's maybe it's possible, but I think it's it's kind of unlikely. So, but um, for all um, doctors, and let's say especially for ophthalmologists, I think you know not everybody is called to do this kind of work, but everybody is called to do something. And so th those who are called to do the work can certainly use the support and encouragement financially and otherwise from uh, those who are not called. So, um, you know, even my office mate, Dr. McNeil, uh, who's now passed away, used to uh, uh, donate to, uh, to every time I'd go over, he'd give me, he'd give me a gift and uh, telling me, you know, I, it's not my call to go over, but I want, I want to do something. I think everybody can do something. Yeah, I think that's simple, but very, very poignant, very relevant and very useful advice. And you got to find your calling, really, and do what really, what rocks the boat for you, what is your passion, what gives you that fire inside, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, how would you, obviously, in all the, the work you've done, James, um, failure you must have dealt with lots of failures. Um, what's your advice for facing failure and dealing with failure? Well, the first project I did, I was in Saudi Arabia and I decided to go over to Pakistan to see whether I could do uh, some cataract surgery over there. And, and I, I went there and I, I accomplished nothing. I did no cataract surgeries. I saw no patients. Um, because my uh, the person who I was meeting ended up having a, a business and 
uh, more important than me. And so he never showed up at the airport. So the, um, uh, you know, the importance of your, your uh, contact person and your, and your faith in that person who's going to do the logistics for you in country uh, is important. But, um, uh, you know, success is built on failure. I learned, I learned a tremendous amount even from that experience and from other experiences. And uh, nobody is, and it's not, it's not that, again, it's not that I measure my success, that the project has to be, has to be a success. I, I tell myself, well, I just have to do my part. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, well, uh, it doesn't work. Um, I, can, I can tell you a story of when I first started in Ethiopia and I was bringing over equipment and I was having a dickens of a time. We had done all of the paperwork ahead of time and everything was approved, but we got there and more paperwork was needed. So they took me to one government office after another and the priest who was with me went to the head man and I was sitting outside and he told the, 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 the bureaucrat, the, the top guy, he said, look at that doctor. He said, now you tell me, if, if he doesn't get his medicine in here and his surgery supplies, do you think he's ever gonna come back to help our people? And of course, had I not gotten everything through, I would not have come back. It would have been a sign to me that, well, God was closing the door on Ethiopia. And I tell you, that, that, that uh, bureaucrat, that head, head man and his office, they turned that building upside down. And within two hours, I had the paperwork I needed, which I, don't, I wonder whether anybody's ever gotten it that fast, up and down the floors. But... Um, you know, I believe God wanted for my mission to be a success that time. And because of that, we have developed the relationship with Dr. Samuel. And so, but, you know, you, you can't know ahead of time. Is it going to be a success or is it going to be a failure? Well, you know, uh, you can't, you can never know. That's, yeah, that's wonderful. I think that's, and you, you mentioned this earlier as well, but I think, and I, I've seen this attitude reflected in, actually across fields the i see you know athletes and champions in sport also talk about this it's about the doing the action and not the obsessing of the outcome because you, you know you find you find your calling you have the fire within you and you just go out there and do it and you leave the outcome to the higher power you leave that to god you leave that to you know however things are going to turn out because then that frees you that frees you to actually work at your hardest um James, you've obviously touching upon what you just spoke about. A lot of this has involved the unknown, I can imagine, and leading people into the unknown. How how do you go about doing that? And how do you go about inspiring people, you know, to take action and, and to look to, to you for, uh, for leadership? You know, as long as I know that I'm in God's will, it doesn't really matter whether I live or die. I'm going to die sooner or later. So um, when it comes time to do something, I would rather put myself at risk than put my team at risk. And if my team is going to be at risk, then I have to lead my team into risk. And it has to be a team decision that we're going to go as a team. And so, um, does that answer the question? It does very well. Yes, uh, I love that. Because 
again, I, I think that's that's the essence of a leader because leadership is taking care of those in your charge. I think, which is what sums it up. There's you know there's books written upon it, but if you're not looking after the people who you're leading, then you're not leading. Um, also, I want to you know faith has been a big theme of your life and of what we've spoken about today in the podcast, um, and I really that really resonates with me, and I think it's a it's a wonderful thing, faith. And I, you know, generally speaking, sometimes in the world, faith gets a bit of a bad rap. Um, I think that's probably how it's represented. Um, but I think we can all agree the essence of faith always has been to transform ourselves to the best we can be. And then by that nature, we can then transform the world around us in our, in our small bubbles, you know, our friends, our family, our communities. And, and I can see those values reflected in you. And it's been, it was a pleasure for us to talk when we first made contact and just to see these themes permeate uh, through your life and how you've gone about um, providing this care to people it is, is I find very inspiring. And I think it should be inspiring for people who believe, who have faith and those who don't, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to be our best selves and, and kind of help and change the world around us. Yes. Um, we're going to, start wrapping up soon um i want to just ask a few final questions uh dr guzek looking back over this career you've had what advice would you give to your younger self you know i i i have i have uh tried since i since i was chastised for my stupidity and my um my wrong inclinations, I have just tried to do what is right, and I have tried to understand what is good and, and what is the truth. And those are my guiding principles, and they have, they have worked for me. It has been a wonderful life. I have had, a, I've had 10 lives, really, or 20 <laughs> I've lived so many life and death experiences that the Lord has given me. Now, not everyone has been a success. Okay, there have been some failures, but I have lived a life that I, I when I die, I can't go to God and say, Lord, it was a boring life, you know, far, far, far from it. Do you think your commitment to service has been one of the main reasons for that? You know, God, that is one of the gifts, I would say, that God has given me, that my, my commitment is to do what is right, and which I believe God wants for us to do the right thing always. He never wants us to do the wrong thing. So what is his plan for my life? Well, it's to do the right thing. It's part of his plan. And so that plan for, for, for me involves service. And I, I think to boy to be to to have this this gift that I can get behind a microscope, and I can take a blind person and make them see. Mm. It is a mind-boggling gift, Pav. You're going to understand this, you know, if you don't understand it already. It's mind-boggling that the next morning they people blind people come and you've given them their life back. What, how, that can life get any better than that? Can <laughs> the gift God has given me to give to other people? I, I can't imagine life could be, I, God could give me any greater gift. 
wonderful. That that yeah, that, I think that's spot on. Um, and I, I I'm I'm grateful. I'm lucky to have had a little bit of that experience in in, in my training. You know, we have you, you take out a, a very dense nucleus sclerotic cataract, uh, counting fingers vision, and just after they've come off the table, they can they can see light, and they're just absolutely gleaming. The patients is just so happy, and you know what you're doing. You're doing this times a thousand in the developing world. It's, you know, I think you've just summed up the um, the motivation, the inspiration um, that we all have, and that we are very lucky to have as ophthalmologists. Because, you know, in the West, in the training pathways, working, you you can get bogged down in the, in the treadmill of of the um, rat race, but you know, people like yourselves remind us of just what is possible. Um, and it's been, you know, watching the end of blindness, listening to your journey, it's been incredibly inspiring. And I really hope that our listeners, be they ophthalmologists or doctors in other specialties, um, can really take something from this, something very tangible, you know, to to go away, look at their skills, find that, you know, there's a reason we've all been given a chance to train. And now we must go out there and we have the responsibility to use and share that gift um, finally, to, to both of you, uh, we've spoken about him um, throughout this last hour or so, um, and I'm hoping to have him with us on, on, on our next podcast. Obviously, the, the situation in Ethiopia is a little bit um, precarious right now. But Dr. Samuel Bora, a bit of a legend, um, do you have any, any, any final words about him? Um, and, you know, would you, what would you say to people who have now been inspired to go and watch the movie. So maybe... Go ahead, uh, go ahead AJ. Yeah. AJ, go ahead. Well, I think, um, you know, <laughs> I think something that really strikes me about Dr. Samuel is how matter-of-fact he is about what he's doing and how little he, you know, wants or needs the spotlight on him. Um, and I, I know definitely this film has brought, you know, we've had to work within his comfort zone because his goal is not to be any sort of famous. His goal is just to help people see. And I really appreciate how humble he is. I mean, he's doing amazing life-changing work. And to him, it's just about the patients. It's not about any of the glory or the fame or anything. It's just about that. And I, I think that that's a really strong model that, you know, even in my own work um, as a filmmaker, which is sometimes can be all about the glory and the fame and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm trying to, you know, really integrate that into my life too, is that perspective that, you know, you stay humble and you focus on helping people and changing lives. And I really hope that's a takeaway that a lot of people take out of the film as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, uh, he's seen the movie, He's excited about the movie and he's excited the message is getting out. But I think if it were up to him, he would just quietly still be doing cataract surgery because this is, you know, it's about the patients. Right. Yeah. Well, well said, AJ. I don't, I don't think I need to add anything to that. <laughs> okay. No, yeah, well said, AJ. And I think that's a really good place to, to come to an end. Um, and, and thank you both so much, not only for your time, but your insights. Um, you know, the inspiration you've shared with us and all the hard work you've put in with 
but with the movie um, and the work surrounding it, um, it it truly is incredibly inspirational. Um, for the benefit of the listeners, we will be putting out um, links uh, when the podcast goes live, um, so you, they can access the movie. It's available online. Um, it's you know, I really recommend people go and watch it. Um, it's also one more, one more thing. One more yeah. thing. You didn't ask me what I have planned next. Oh, please, yes. What do you have planned next, James? <laughs> so um, the good news is that's some real thrilling news. Time for champagne. We got our a suite of, of operating room uh, instruments sent into Juba, South Sudan, where we've sent it to uh, uh, one of the young uh, cataract surgeons there. And we're hoping to duplicate this whole effort in uh, South Sudan, a lot, lot more level, a lot higher level difficulty, but I think it can be done. Wow. Okay. I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, I think you will do it. I mean, I, it, you, you don't want to have less difficulty, don't you? You want to. <laughs> you want. <laughs> You can't settle now. You have to keep raising that bar and, and <laughs> yeah, bigger challenges. Um, uh, when is that? When when do you expect that things to get running out there? So what has to happen next is we'll fu we're funding um, three of the cataract surgeons to move to Wow at W A U. That's the town of Wow. It's the second largest town in South Sudan. There's nobody, no ophthalmologist there now, but there's uh, several hundred thousand people there. And so when they get there, uh, we're gonna we're gonna back the, we're gonna back up uh, their salaries and the and the bread and the equipment for uh, give or take six months. And then they're going to be on their own to make that a private clinic. But with that private clinic, they will then have the staff and training. And the, the top doctor, Dr. David Malish, I believe has the, the same characteristics as Dr. Samuel. And so we're hoping then from WOW to be able to send him once a month for one week eye camps to do uh, the same kind of eye camp work that we've done in Ethiopia to help the people in that region to, to have hope and to see. Wonderful. And, and I really hope it, it does kick off well and, you know, that, and that it's not the end. And it's another stepping stone to, you know, literally ending blindness um, step by step in, in the countries we've spoken of. Um, and it's a great job you guys are doing. Um, so just to end there, um, we will be um, putting up links about where people can see the end of blindness. So AJ, if you let us know for the benefit of our listeners, where can we see this movie, The End of Blindness? Yeah, so uh, you can check out The End of Blindness at theendofblindness.com slash watch. Uh, there you're going to find links to iTunes, Apple TV, YouTube TV, um, and, uh, you know, several other st uh, streaming platforms as they come out. Um, the End of Blindness is also premiering uh, February 12th at the Santa Fe Film Festival. So if any of your listeners are in New Mexico and want to watch an incredible movie on February 12th, uh, come, to, uh, come to the Santa Fe Film Fest and you can catch us there. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. And I think just to summarize some of the main points, uh, there's been many points, but from our conversation today for fellow doctors, um, ophthalmologists or not, 
It's about finding your calling, getting your training in, staying humble, staying compassionate, and then thinking about service to your fellow man. And I think from what I've heard from you both, if you stick to those ideals, you can't really go wrong, can you? No. Yep. Thank you very much to you both. Um, and uh, we will call that an end today. Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome, Pav. Take care. Thanks so much, Pav. This is amazing.